Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, you really couldn't have picked a better week. We launch into a new series today that will lead us right up to Memorial Weekend called 50. And we named the series after an impossibly significant time in human history. Uh, Only 50 days separate the crucifixion of Jesus from the birth of the church. And during those days, it is no exaggeration to say that the course of human history was forever changed. In just over seven weeks' time, uh, Jesus returned from the grave. He then spent 40 days with his disciples. Just imagine the conversations that he had with them after returning from the grave, right? And I would submit to you that these disciples listened in a way they had never listened before. I would, right? Because anybody who predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off immediately has cred with anything else that they say. So that had to be an interesting time. Uh, Then he sends his disciples to Jerusalem, uh, the city where he had been crucified, to wait until they received power from God, which would have sounded as strange to them as it would if he said it to you. But again, he was back. He told them to go and they went. Uh, Then he ascended into the heavens before their eyes. And then a few days later, 3,000 Jewish people place their faith in Jesus and the church explodes to life. By all accounts, it was an unprecedented time in history. And for the next four weeks, we're going to explore what happened during those 50 days. In many ways, it sets the stage for the following 2,000 years of church history. And so what I want to do today is pick up the story where we left off last week. And if you weren't here, and by the way, based on the parking lot, a whole bunch of you were, right? We, uh, we actually had a record attendance last weekend. Uh, 20, oh, uh, over the course of the weekend, we had about 2,700 people uh, through our doors at Keystone. So there we go like that. And if that's one of you... Um, And by the way, if you had any part in helping us expand our facility, whether it was financially or through service or whatever, you have a part in that and we are just thrilled. We could not have fit that many people in the old building. I'm just saying. Okay, so go team. Okay, so last week, um, if you weren't here, catch you up. Last week we noted that how on that first Easter morning, and if you grew up in church, you may have missed this, uh, but on the first Easter morning, nobody expected nobody. And I had to do it again because it's my favorite thing. And then we have to leave it for a while. But nobody expected nobody. In in other words, nobody was waiting at the tomb where the body of Jesus had been placed uh, that first Easter morning, counting down to the resurrection. Uh, When Jesus died on the cross, everybody thought his movement was over. His followers had hoped, they had believed, they had trusted But see, when Jesus was crucified, everybody unfollowed him. And it wasn't that he didn't teach some amazing things. He certainly did. And it wasn't that he didn't do some amazing miracles. The the reason everybody unfollowed Jesus was that, well, he just claimed too much about himself. His movement wasn't so much about the teachings. It was about him and what he had come to do. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the resurrection and the life, well, can't be murdered. And then he said, I am the son of God, but but the son of God can't be crucified, at least not in their mind. And so when Jesus died, everyone's faith in him vanished. There were no Christians at the crucifixion. There was simply nothing to hold on to. There was no movement to keep alive. There was no message worth repeating. The game was over. In fact, on the evening of that first Good Friday, Jesus' closest disciples went into hiding. For them, it had been anything but a good day. 
And as the sun set, if you were to say, well, where, where were they? I would tell you that they had hunkered down in a room in Jerusalem and they were terrified. They were afraid for their lives because they had been Jesus' most visible followers. And they knew that the same religious leaders who had murdered Jesus might try to get to them if they feared that they would pick up the Jesus movement where he had left off. Again, so they found a room and they hunkered down. And in that room, if you said, what was the atmosphere like? I would just use the word shock. They were shocked that so much had changed in just 24 hours. See, a day earlier, Jesus, Jesus had seemed unstoppable. He had never been more popular with the people. Everyone thought he was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the anointed one. He was the one that God had promised their ancestors would send and restore Israel to prosperity on the world stage. 24 hours before he was crucified, Jesus shared a meal with his first disciples. It was a last Supper. Yep, that was the one, right? And during this meal, he had washed their feet and he had spoken to them about a new relationship, a new covenant, a new testament that was going to be made between people and God through him. That was then. But 24 hours later, tears of grief, tears of fear filled their eyes. And I imagine that as they fell asleep, their minds were just racing. That, that was Friday. Saturday proved to be the longest day any of them had ever endured. The emotions in the room where they hid would have been suffocating. As they wrestled with missed expectations and anger and disillusionment and frustration. Because you see, their future, which had seemed so clear, had descended into a fog of confusion. To be clear, they were in mourning, but they weren't just mourning the loss of their leader. See, following Jesus had cost these guys everything. And I wonder if they felt deceived. See, they had left behind family and friends and homes and businesses to become his disciples. They had spent three years literally following him around. And initially, the sacrifice had seemed worth it. They had become the inner circle to the most powerful man they had ever seen. Jesus literally had the power of God in his hands. When he was around, impossible things became possible. They watched as he opened the eyes of the blind. They watched as he opened the ears of the deaf. They remembered the day on the Sea of Galilee where the weather had changed based on Jesus' command. And they had even recalled the time that they had seen a man who had been dead for days, literally resurrected. His name was Lazarus. He had been a friend. But that was a moment they would never forget. But now, see, now everything had changed. And their hope in Jesus had died. That was Saturday. And then, early Sunday morning, they were awakened by a knock on the door. And yes, I brought this table out just to do that. Thank you. <laughs> early Sunday morning, there's a knock at the door. Peter and John answer. And then on the other side of the door, there's a woman named Mary Magdalene, and they knew her really well. See, she had been a follower of Jesus, and uh, that morning, though, she carried a very disturbing message. Here's what she said, and it was recorded for us by John, who would have been there. Uh, he said, they, and we don't know who they is, but they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So Jesus' body isn't where it was supposed to be. And we don't know where they have put him. See, she had gone early in the morning to the tomb where Jesus' body had been placed and it was empty. And you say, well, what did she think? Well, her first thought was somebody stole the body. It's important to know that 
this idea that somebody would have stolen Jesus' body would not have surprised Peter and John or any of the disciples because, see, a lot of people wanted Jesus and his movement dead. And these people certainly wouldn't have wanted Jesus' tomb to become a shrine or a place to galvanize the resolve of his first followers to carry on his mission. So it would make sense to them that someone would have removed Jesus' body from the tomb. And upon hearing the news, uh, Peter and John raced to the tomb to see it for themselves. And when I say Peter and John raced to the tomb, I mean they, well, they literally raced to the tomb, which brings me to one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And I've been so excited all week to share it with you. Okay, check out what happens next. John 20, starting in verse 9. So, Peter and the other disciple, that's John who's writing this, started for the tomb. Both were running, okay? But John wants us to know that the other disciple, right, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And as, as we said last week, I think there's a little chit-chat when they get to heaven and Jesus is like, John, we talked about humility. What are you doing? <laughs> like 2,000 years later in Ada, Michigan, people are going to be reading this and they're going to be laughing at you. But yeah, uh, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but, but did not go in. Oh, he's not done yet. Let's look at the next slide. Then Simon Peter, who, by the way, did, did I mention, was behind him. That was where he was arrived and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Next slide. Finally, the other disciple, who, I'm just so we're clear, <laughs> reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. And just pause for a second. I ask a question here. What exactly did he believe? Right. He believed that someone had stolen Jesus' body. That is the only reasonable explanation for the empty tomb. And so Peter and John returned to the other disciples and they confirm what had happened. And then a few hours later, as best I can figure timeline-wise, later that day, once again... Mary knocks on their door. But this time, her demeanor has changed. This time, uh, instead of being disturbed, her eyes are filled with wonder because she has seen something that was unexplainable, yet undeniable. See, she had come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Here's how she said it. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And rest assured, in this moment, if you put yourself in Mary's shoes, she had a lot of very legitimate questions. There was a whole bunch of stuff she did not understand. There was a ton she couldn't explain. But something unbelievable had happened that allowed her to carry her questions with her over the line of faith in Jesus. She believed even though she had unanswered questions because something undeniable had happened and Jesus was back. Unbelievable yet undeniable. And by the way, it's not unusual for people to believe in things they can't explain when the reality of those things is undeniable. It may surprise you, in fact, to learn that particle physicists do this all the time. You didn't see that coming, did you? I'm so excited about this next chunk. Okay. Um, Here's, here's the deal. Uh, particle physicists are, are nerds. And if you're here, 
be honored, nerds, who study the building blocks of everything, atoms and nucleuses and things way smaller than atoms and nucleuses, and they are well aware of the unexplainable and undeniable. For example, this is a picture of an atom. And you may remember this from school, but you have the nucleus of the atom, and then you have the electrons, uh, which always in the drawings are orbiting around, much like a moon would orbit a planet. And, and that's a great picture, and we put it on things in our military, um, and it looks very clean and very simple that the nucleus is orbited by the electrons, and that's how people initially thought the thing worked. But as it turns out, and you've got to stay with me here because this is Mongo weird, electrons don't orbit the center of atoms in a consistent manner. Instead, they disappear in one place and appear in another place without traveling the distance in between. Electrons literally vanish and then show up somewhere else, leaping from one location to another with no way to predict when and where they will come or go. And if you're paying attention, you probably have a thought that goes like this, huh? Like what? Uh, there was a physicist in the early 1900s named Niels Bohr who was the first human to grasp this reality and he called these movements quantum leaps. And a few of you just thought of Scott Bakula. Yeah. He also said uh, that anyone who wasn't outraged by quantum theory didn't understand what was being said. They found something unbelievable yet undeniable. Here's, here's another one. In 1925, a man named Wolfgang Pauli discovered something equally ridiculous and yet nonetheless true. Um, he talked about how pairs of quantum particles, so these microscopic particles, demonstrated, and the word he used was awareness of what the other is doing even after being separated and without any kind of signal between them. He calls it entanglement. In fact, uh, scientists have taken two entangled particles and separated them dramatically, think 2,400 miles, one at a lab in New York, one at a lab in Los Angeles. And when the spin of one of these particles was reversed by a burst of electrical energy, the spin of the other one, 2,400 miles away, reversed as well at the same time. And again, they are not connected in any measurable way and the invisible communication, however that works between them, is 10,000 times faster than the speed of light. Wow. And they would say, unbelievable and yet undeniable. We grow up in a world where science says everything is just clean. We can predict everything. But when you actually dig down beneath the surface, things get really weird. Okay, one more, just for fun, and this is for those of you who didn't follow the quantum theory thing, but those of you that have a toaster. Are you with me? Everybody's got a toaster. Okay, you are going to love this one. I read a book this week in preparing called Quantum Physics for Poets, which is a nice way of saying quantum physics for dummies, I think, but I followed it, so that was great. It's a great read if you want to get into it. Um, but anyway, um, the author noted that as things heat up, specifically metal, they register different colors, and each new color represents an increase in temperature. And so according to the standard assumptions about heat and color, your toaster should glow blue. But as you may have noticed, it doesn't. It glows red. And here's the best part. Nobody knows why. So you get these people with PhDs and they get in the room and you start talking about toasters and they're like, yeah, we got nothing. 
But you're like, but yeah, but, 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 but why is it blue? Well, they're like, all the mathematics, all the computations, everything we know about the universe and the consistency of, of everything should say it should be blue, and yet it's red. And yeah, we have no idea. It's unexplainable, and yet it's red. It's undeniable. And I share all of that fun stuff to say that that is the sort of space that Mary entered on that first Easter morning when she encountered something impossible yet indisputable. See, John doesn't record how the disciples responded to Mary, but I can guess. I think they believed that Mary was delusional with grief. And in order to reduce the cognitive dissonance caused by the death of Jesus, her brain had constructed a believable fantasy. But they weren't going to be hijacked by their emotions. They were committed to the most rational explanation of the empty tomb, even though they all wished Mary was right. And they held on to their reason until the moment later that day when the undeniable paid them a visit. And this time, there was no knock at the door. John records it for us. He says this, on the evening of that first day, again, that first Easter Sunday of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, so again, you see, they were, they were terrified. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And, and just pause for a second. Do you know why Jesus had to say, peace be with you? <laughs> because a few of them needed a moment to go change their undergarments, okay? <laughs> the, again, uh, yeah. He continued. After this, he said, or he showed them his hands and his side as if to say, it's really me. Here's where the nails went. Here's where they pierced my side. And the disciples, and this is instant, like in the next sentence, John tells us the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In an instant, they came to believe something that was unbelievable and yet undeniable. And I would argue that just like Mary, they had questions, lots of questions, but their questions had been reframed by something that they could not deny, and they were all able to carry their questions across the line of faith in Jesus. Now, the story gets more interesting because as he continues, John tells us there was one disciple, a famous disciple, who wasn't there that night. And, and you say, well, what was he doing? My guess is he ran out to get some bread or some supplies for dinner. But as we continue, we learn um, his story. He says, now Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And, and that would have struck Thomas just like Mary's words to them had struck them earlier that day. So perhaps they had some empathy. But Thomas responds, he says, uh, but, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. In other words, I can't possibly believe what you're saying. I can't go there without more information. I can't get past my questions. And fortunately, Jesus has another visit on his calendar. Here's what John tells us. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them, Again, as in like, they're like, he keeps doing this. It weirds us out. And said, 
peace be with you. Because it's no less shocking the second time. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out, put your hand in my side. He says, stop doubting and believe. And in a moment, like Mary and the other disciples before him, Thomas's questions were reframed by something he could not deny. Check out Thomas's response. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, he falls to his knees. And again, shortly before this, a few days before, everyone had unfollowed Jesus. I mean, we've said this all along, but it's critical to note that Mary and Jesus' disciples still had a lot of questions. They had a lot of questions as the events of that first Easter Sunday unfolded. In fact, it wouldn't be a stretch to say they have a lot of the same questions that people still have today. People that are gathered in this room still have today. I made a list. They might ask, how can a good God allow suffering? I mean, if God is good, why do bad things happen to good? Or if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? It just doesn't seem to make sense. And by the way, if they had been asking this question, understand that their context was that they had just watched the goodest, bestest person who had ever stepped foot on planet Earth die the most horrible death imaginable. How can a good God allow suffering? It's a great question that we don't always have answers for. How about this one? Why doesn't God seem to answer our prayers? I think we've all had moments like that. Like if he's really there and he's really care and he really cares and it's not a selfish prayer, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a prayer that maybe it's a prayer for someone else that's in need. Maybe it's a prayer for healing of some kind but God just doesn't seem to answer our prayers. And I think the disciples would say, oh yeah, yeah, we were praying too. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and those soldiers came to, to take him, and we were praying like crazy and God was like not paying attention as these things unfolded. So yeah, that would have been a question they would carry too. Or, or maybe this is, maybe not them, but this may be you. You know, what happens to all those people who practice other faiths? Like, how does that work? I just don't get it. I mean, you know, even if I can kind of go along with the Jesus thing, what, what about people all over the world that think differently or believe differently than we do? How, what do we do with that? And how about this one? Um, and they wouldn't have maybe had this question, but some of my friends do. Do I have to believe the really strange parts of the Bible? <laughs> like, I read some of that stuff and I'm like, ooh, I'm not sure I can go there, right? I mean, do I have to believe every word in the Bible before I put my faith in Jesus? And that's a great, great question. But here's the thing. The danger with these questions is that they have the potential to keep people, to keep you, to keep me from crossing the line of faith in Jesus. And so often we don't get to have answers to these questions on this side of the grave. But here's why I bring that up. The resurrection provides a way to faith in Jesus around your questions. And by the way, if you sent this podcast to your college student, hello, nice to have you listening. Okay, because if Jesus, the, the resurrection provides a way to faith in Jesus around our questions because the, if Jesus really came back from the dead, then that changes everything. And that means that faith in Jesus is tethered to a verifiable, unbelievable, undeniable, historical event. Again, your questions are good questions. My questions are good questions. A lot of times they're questions that don't have answers. But see, when you go to the resurrection, that really does have the power to reframe everything. Because it's, again, a verifiable, undeniable, 
unbelievable historical event. And a few of you who are analytically inclined want to raise your hand right now. And here's the question you have. Uh, verifiable? How do you figure? Right? And that's a great question. Well, here's, what, here's, here's why I think it's verifiable. It has to do with what happened after the resurrection. Because days after the resurrection, Jesus' first followers hit the streets. Again, these same followers who were terrified for their lives, hiding in a locked room for fear of the Jewish leadership who would come after them. Days after the resurrection, they hit the streets of Jerusalem and fearlessly proclaimed that Jesus was alive again. That reality is inconceivable apart from belief in a resurrection, the political and social forces were so stacked against them. And these disciples spent the rest of their lives proclaiming what God had done in and through Jesus Christ. A, a new covenant, a new relationship made possible in his blood shed on the cross and a new life in him as evidenced by the resurrection. So they spent their lives doing this. They encountered incredible persecutions. And eventually, these disciples lost their lives because they refused to deny the resurrection. How did they die? I'm so glad you asked. Here's what history tells us. Peter, Andrew, Philip, Thaddeus, and Simon were crucified, just like Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was beaten and stoned to death. Bartholomew was beheaded. Matthew was stabbed in the back. And Thomas was pierced with four spears. And I love the detail. Someone counted, right? See, the disciples of Jesus didn't just give their lives for something they believed. They gave their lives for something that they had seen. And to them, it was a truth that was worth dying for. Their willingness to give everything so that we could know what actually happened has given thousands of years of Christians confidence that the undeniable did in fact overwhelm the unbelievable when Jesus physically rose from the dead. I want to reread a quote that I shared last week from a favorite Bible scholar, Gary Habermas. And here's what he says if you, if you study the history. He says, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. The earliest Christians didn't just endorse Deja's teachings, which of course they did. They were convinced they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, he says, since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. As we, as we come in for a landing, um, I want to speak to those of you who have been around here and you're on the outside of faith looking and you're kicking the tires. And we are thrilled that you're here and please continue to kick the tires. But I want to lean on you just a little bit as we land today. And I'm not here to convince you to put your faith in Jesus because I can't do that. But my goal for today is just to let you know that there is an avenue by which you can pick up your questions and your objections, and carry them across the, the line of faith in Jesus as well. And as we've said all along, it simply happens when you opt for what is undeniable instead of living in the shadow of what is unexplainable. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then your other questions and my other questions can wait. And so on the off chance that, that one of you this morning, something, something inside of you went, wow. I've never thought about it that way. I've spent my life trying to, you know, get all my ducks in a row, make sure I understand everything before I place my faith in Jesus. But, but that actually kind of makes sense. 
And if that's you, I just want to give you a chance to pray a prayer that a whole bunch of us have prayed, just accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. Just say to God, I believe. I believe that, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just the savior of the world, he, he was my savior. And, and when he rose from the grave, that means that someday I too get to rise after I die. And, and again, I have a lot of questions, and maybe, but maybe I have enough to say, I, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was who he said he was. I believe he is who he said he is. And so if that's you, I just, I just invite you to pray. We'll, we'll all pray together. Why don't you stand? Um, and we'll, we'll close in prayer. Um, but if that's you, just, just repeat this prayer. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe, maybe just repeat this prayer as well for you. I mean, it's, it's a prayer that simply just acknowledges to God that, yeah, I mean, I, I can't deny what you did in Jesus. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, first of all, this morning, we just say thank you. Thank you for the love that drove you to send your one and only son to create a new sort of relationship between us and you. This morning, um, for a whole bunch of us, we just confess that we believe. We believe that you sent Jesus to rescue not just the world, but to rescue us. And that when he died on the cross, he died for us. And when he rose, he rose for us. And we believe that when we place our trust in you, you accept us as your son or your daughter. Our sins are paid and we stand before you holy because of Jesus. Thank you for making what is undeniable so clear even in the midst of the unexplainable. In the matchless name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week for part two of 50.